I feel like you should be the one here at the soundboard. No, I should I'm sit over there. At, at a, or I don't know that much about like running sound at all. It's okay. Then like something's not working, and I have to run back and try to figure out what the heck is going on for a show or something. Let me see if I can get yours turned. Uh, check, 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 check. There, there we am. go. I'm on there mic you three. are. That must be mic two. That must be. So. It's weird because the headphones are usually not in the same place oh, as the mics yeah. they've every time i come in here it's different yeah i don't know who else uses this space but aaron harden thank you for joining me today yeah glad to be here all right i wanted to ask you about uh the music gigs you've done recently because Macklin heard you in Memphis not too long ago. Yep. I don't remember, a couple months ago, maybe? Um, yeah, we've played a lot the last few months. It's picked up a lot, for sure. What I mean, band got, are you with right now? So I play, I'm the pedal steel player for Cotton Clifton and the Pickers. It's kind of like a honky-tonk, uh, barroom rock band. Uh, very different than my normal life. Like, playing in that band is not... Yeah. Uh, I definitely play a character in the in that in that realm and get to kind of pretend like I'm a different type of person. Like Play a these, character? Yeah, I mean, performance, uh, especially playing music, uh, I mean, and teaching as well. So, like, teaching college, and I tell my students this, is like, you know, I'm playing a character, I'm wearing a, a costume in front of you in order to be the person I need to be, mm-hmm. in order to do the thing that is going to be most beneficial to the room. And so, you know, in the same way, like playing in a a honky-tonk band, you know, like that's very different than my normal existence in a lot of ways, you know? Um, Yeah, I remember the first time I saw you here on campus as a teacher, I was like, that's the best dressed I've ever seen him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, you can't walk in in flip-flops and shorts (laughs) and a t-shirt as a teacher. It's just, it's, it's kind of frowned upon, sadly. Uh, but I'm fortunate that they, I don't have to wear khakis, so I at least can wear jeans, yeah. you know, as a teacher. But It yeah. is interesting that different departments have different sort of subcultures. So like the digital media world is way different than the theology world and or the linguistics world or whatever. Yeah, we're all different silos for sure. Um, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not an academic really, or I don't feel like I'm an academic. I think I feel like I just kind of stumbled into this uh, just because I love photography and love what I do. Um, but I mean, it's the same thing with music. I mean, I, I never intended to be playing. I mean, I love playing music and I love playing in bands and stuff. And I've played in bands for many, many years, definitely yeah. 10 or 15 years. Uh, I, it, I'm arguably too old to be playing in bands, you know, like there's a point of where it's like, you know, maybe you're the old, maybe you're the old guy in the room, you know, like it's getting closer to that experience. Okay. Uh, but in you know in the same like you just kind of like follow a path until you end up you know in this place and uh that's more of how i try to live my life anyway is if you if this opportunity comes in your lap even if you're not prepared or capable of doing it i mean with the honky tonk band like i had just started started to learn how to play lap steel and i built my own lap steel just because i wanted to because mm-hmm. i like doing those types of things and started kind of learning a little bit on it and and then a friend of mine uh that I've known for years like Brandon he uh he's a really excellent guitar player songwriter he plays for uh the Colonel like he's a good lead guitar player but he's also a pretty awesome frontman um 
we were, I don't even remember how the conversation started, but he was like, yeah, maybe some steel would be, you know, like Lapsteel would be kind of cool on this, on this song that I'm doing. Uh, and then that evolved into playing full time in the band. And then, you know, a few years ago, the lap steel was kind of limited on what I could do. And I was like, man, I'd really like to learn how to play pedal steel and pedal steel's not that's usually kind of like a handed down craft. Like okay. very few people just like cold pick up pedal steel, especially like as an adult. Usually you okay. grow up and you're either your mother or father plays pedal steel or you grow up in a church where it's a tradition or, you know, it's a, like it's the a handed, organ kind of the same. Yeah, it's kind of like the organ, yeah. you know, I mean, except that there's not a lot of um, like formal training, you know, at least you could go to school and learn how to play organ, but pedal mm-hmm. steel, there's not really a conduit. It's very, um, person to person and learning that instrument. Uh, so, I, you know, people had always told me like, yeah, you trying to learn pedal steel is not really going to happen. And I kind of believed it. And then eventually, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was like, I just want to try, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I, I'll learn a little bit and that'll get me, you know, just as far as I've gotten on the lap steel. And I found one at Pops Music for on consignment for super cheap, like crazy cheap. And I was like, well, I'll just, if I can't, if I don't learn it, then I'll just sell the pedal steel. And that's where I started. Just picked it up, like entry-level pedal steel and, um, you know, made a lot of mistakes and sounded terrible for a while. But, you know, you just kind of keep at it. And, and now it's kind of like a, it's part of the sound of that band, like the, mm-hmm. the way that I play pedal steel too, because I don't play it in a traditional country way. Um you know, and I wouldn't have known several years ago. That was always a goal I had. It's like I would always learn, learn, love to learn how to play that instrument. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's you kind of have to take the risk, and if an opportunity's there, you have to be willing to like be bad for a while, like be terrible at something for a while. And I mean, it's the same thing with photography. I tell all my students like, good photography is built upon ninety nine percent failure. Like, good work only happens after you've had more than ninety nine percent failure of bad work. And failure doesn't mean failure as a person. It's just like you make a lot of bad things until you make some good things. And then you have to notice what the good things are and keep trying at the good things. And um, I find that that's uh, one of the biggest walls for people when it comes to creative things that that um, are not necessarily quantifiable, you know? Like it's yeah. hard to say like uh, – you know, what makes something good or great sometimes. Um, and I think a lot of younger people, uh, younger creative people, younger people that are working in the arts, whether it's music or visual art or filmmaking or whatever, uh, they don't realize that, like, the people that they look up to have, you know, years and years of bad work behind them. Like, they've made a ton of bad things. Yeah. And that is great. Like, that's the only way that you grow is is learning from doing it the wrong way or just not being that good. You know, the thing is if you have, uh, Ira Glass has this little bit that he talks about, like your taste, you know, like the, what you feel like is good is something that maybe is kind of baked into you. You know, when you see something that's really great or hear something that's really great and you know that you can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you try, you try to play this, you know, this lick or you try to play this song and it, you know, that it's not that good, you know? And, and I, again, point back to Ira Glass, he talks about how, like, to be great at something, you just have to do it over and over and over and be willing to keep striving towards that thing that you can't attain, and gradually you'll get there. Yeah. You'll, your ability will catch up with your taste, and uh, but that just takes time, and it takes failure, and I think just a lot of younger 
uh, practitioners just don't realize how normal failure is. It's like, it's a must. Like you have to fail a ton and have to be really terrible at something. Nobody's born being a great musician. I mean, as much as we want to believe that there are prodigies in the world, like any of those like 12 year old kids you see on YouTube that are amazing, like those kids have been playing for like eight or 10 hours a day, seven days a week for five or six years of their life. Like just do the math on how many hours that is. And then if you play that many hours, you'll be as good as that 12 year old. But no kid that you see on YouTube just picked up a guitar or a piano and just started playing. Like they've had some structure in their life where they've been doing it for a very long time, even at that age. And, um, I think once you get through that hurdle and like you have a little humility, like you, not that you, you, uh, accept mediocrity, um, because I'm in no way like an excellent pedal steel player at all. Um, but I love that. I love the craft and I love doing it. And, and I know I'm comfortable with my skill level, you know, but also, I love growing and getting better. Um, I think you have to have a healthy balance of like self-criticism and also embracing just what your ability is at that time, knowing that putting in the effort and the work, you know, five years from now, you're going to just be a lot better. You're just going to be better at it. Um, But that only comes to doing it. Man, diving right in. That's great. (laughs) I've already uh, had a cup of coffee, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the key. That's the key to a good (laughs) podcast is a good cup of coffee. Um, okay, so have you read the book Outliers? I haven't, no. Um, it talks about the Beatles. And they, for years before anyone knew who they were, they played shows that were literally six, seven, eight hours long. They would play till two in the morning, mm-hmm. till everybody was gone. You know, there would be, people would be trickling out, trickling out, and they'd just keep playing. And so they got their 10,000 hours in way before anybody knew who they were. So that's what's going through my head. And also Bach, um, I, I heard recently that if you were to just sit down and copy the music that Bach wrote, not take the time to think through it like he did, but just to copy it, it would take literally decades. Mm. So maybe that's why he's one of the best, is he had the most music. You know, the amount of music that he put out at a time when things weren't digital is huge. So how many how many of those pieces actually weren't that great yeah. and what we hear are the top one percent exactly and that's still way more music than most people have written yeah i mean there's you know I, it's not like a silver bullet necessarily that just because you're making a lot of things you're going to be better i mean there has to be a critical component to it sure. always but i think that at least i've observed in like people my age and younger especially that they think think that and we think that I, I I do the same exact thing that if I can just be critical of something mm-hmm. then I can be good at it yeah and that's not the case at all I mean you have to have tons and tons and tons of production and the criticism but criticism enough that doesn't totally kill your production you yeah. know because that's the other side of it you're so critical and you are so smart because you read all these books and you listen to all this stuff and you you know you have all the you know the book learning as it were that you can't even allow yourself to fail. You can't even allow yourself to make bad stuff. You can't even allow yourself to to produce that 99% of like, meh, uh-huh. so that you can get the 1% of like halfway decent and maybe yeah. that 0.001% of excellent, you know? Yeah. But, you know, and I, I think about photography, especially because that's really my root, like mode of working and thinking about the world and, and like being creative. 
that like every famous photographer that anyone ever knows, even like people that are fairly well studied, like you really only can think of maybe 10 or 20 pictures of theirs, you know, that they made. Hmm. And it's like, you think about somebody that has a 50 year career yeah, and you only think of 10 images, like what are the percentages of that? You know, so how much of what they've made, you just never know. The trick hmm. is with criticism is knowing when you have hit that, the special special, right? It's like when you can discern the difference between good enough and great, you know, and then just showing people the great. Because <laughs> Do you think really that's something you can know in the moment? Like you snap it and you're like, okay, that was a good one. No, I mean, okay. I don't think so. I, I think that, um, I, you know, I'm not going to go too deep into the dive of like how a picture is necessarily made, but there's a complete subconscious um, intuition that exists that that in making work, I think that like you have to work it's not wholly cerebral. Like some of it is subconscious. It's your gut. It, you know, whatever you want to call it yeah. um, in yeah. a moment that you make a split second decision that like this piece of time is just that much better than the piece of time before it and after it, you know, when you push the button. There's a part of your subconsciousness that has been fed with data over decades of, of receiving information that give you the insight to make that decision. But it's not all that information is not going through your head. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like every time I make a picture and in my head at that moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a zinger. It's never a zinger. It's too it's always okay. too on the nose. OK, you know, yeah. there's nothing to discover. And I think like the power of of our of our minds and our brains how that pro- how they process copious amounts of data under the hood is really what makes um like good photography really powerful because like when you see an image if you can just understand it right on the get go if like you see it and you're like that's a picture of a flower that's boring like i'm done i don't want to look at that anymore that's why like i hate pictures of flowers and sunsets and railroad tracks and all the tropey typical junk, you know? Yeah, everybody's done it. Yeah, everybody's done it, and and that goes really deep. I mean, I'm very seldom do I see anything that I actually like at this point, just because, you know, once you kind of develop a certain taste, it's hard to just like mediocre stuff. Sure. Which is a blessing and a curse, for sure. Um, but a really interesting picture has so much um, depth, whether it's the information that you're seeing, or how the information is arranged, the form of it, that you're able to come at that over and over, even though that's a static object that, yeah. that exists. It, it in no way changes, right? It's a static object. But if you can come at it over and over as a viewer and receive something or at least ask questions and those questions are never fully answered, you know, I, I think that good pictures and good art, they don't give you the answers. They just ask questions of you as a participant, as a viewer. Um, and so... You're, that all happens in your subconsciousness, really. I mean, you as the the maker, I don't think it's possible that you can know every outcome of every answer of how someone might interpret what they're seeing. I think that it's all intuition, and that intuition is built upon from hours of of, of reading good things and ingesting good media and ingesting good painting and listening, you know, like reading poetry and short stories yeah. and and all that. A lot of it's outside of actual photography like if you're if you want to be a good photographer like yeah you need to look at good photography but you need to like listen to good music read good stories watch good movies okay yeah you know this is actually something i wanted to ask you and it's interesting already we've been toggling back and forth between photography and music yeah i wanted to ask you if if 
being a musician also makes you a better photographer and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I've reconciled it in my own personal practice, um, and it took a lot of years. It really wasn't until I was, you know, probably early 30. I'm 34 now, and so, like, really 30, 31, 32 is when some of the stuff started material to materialize for me. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's the same for everyone, but for, for me, um, I, I think about the way that I play music, and I, um, like, I have no desire to read off of charts. I have no desire to, like... I want to experience that moment, like playing mm-hmm. the actual live show for me is the chief end for me. Okay. Um, and, and that means like you are living in this kind of uh, emotional moment. Like there are these uh, emotional movements in playing music that that's what really I enjoy is like the rest of the world fading away and I'm living in this moment and I'm feeling these things with a group of people. Um, and, you know, I, I want to translate that emotional space to the audience. Um, and so that's why like my favorite guitar players are not the fastest, most technical guitar players. My favorite guitar players are the ones that know when to play just the right note in order to stick that little knife deeper in your heart. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's such an emotional thing. Um, so like, I don't care about Steve Vai or any of these like crazy fast pickers, like, because for me, it doesn't have, like a certain, I hate to use the word soul, but it doesn't tap into this, this emotional longing where somebody like to be like totally pop, pop culture, somebody like BB King, um, you know, everybody knows BB King. I mean, he's like ubiquitous in the, in the blues world and even pop music world. Everybody knows BB King, but the thing that he, the, he's one of my favorite guitar players because like he plays kind of the same stuff over and over. Like he's not, Mm. And he's not playing a ton of notes. He's just playing a few notes. But when he plays them and and in what context he plays them is such an expression of longing. You know, it's such a deep – it's the absence sometimes of the notes that really makes it good. And I think for my own photographic practice, um, it's not about being – I mean, of course I want to be the whatever the best could you, that's not really a quantifiable thing, the sure. best photographer. That's not really a thing. My goal for my work though, is that I want to tap into a nonverbal emotional space for my viewer because like we live in a, like a, the post enlightenment reality is that like everything that you need in life can be attained through reading a book and knowledge and everything can be communicated with words. And I just don't believe that. Hmm. Like, I don't think that in my practice, my own creative practices, whether it's with music or with photography or whatever. Um, I think that there's a whole space of our existence that is innately nonverbal, that, that there aren't words necessarily that can, you can just attach to those things. Um, and though I would never, I would always say like, I draw a lot of inspiration, you know, from different stories I hear, like verbal things, of course, but I think that there are certain longings that words don't quite tap into. And I think that's the power of music often is that like, especially in a corporate sense, when you have a lot of people in a room and we're experiencing something together emotionally, like there's a power in that, you know, Mm -hmm. that can be in a sacred context. It can be in a secular context. I think just the way that music what it is and what it does, it taps into a certain part of our brains that that can only it, it only it can do. And I think yeah. in the same thing, what I love about 
the the gaze of looking at something, you know, what photography does. Because really all a photograph is is an extended gaze at something in a box. It's it's a moment where you're <clears throat> you're stopping and you're looking at, at one particular thing <clears throat> excuse me for a extended amount of time. Um, whereas normally that, that means you have to reflect. There's a reflective, it, it invites you to stop and reflect and meditate. Um, and I, and I think the power of a photograph is that you can meditate on a, something maybe that you are familiar with or that you've seen, but you didn't really see it. Like you didn't really, okay. you didn't really understand the, sometimes the poetry of very normal things that are around you all the time. Um, and sometimes it's just stopping and meditating on something and it, it moves you emotionally to feel something, uh, or to, to feel a longing or whatever. I mean that, I think, so putting music and phot- photography together for my own practice, like it's all about moving someone emotionally in a nonverbal way. How do I deliver a narrative to somebody nonverbally that draws them to a place almost a universal place. I mean, that's kind of a goal. It's like, how can, how can five or six or 10 people stand around a photograph or a piece and have different backgrounds, come from different families, have different cultural realities, whatever. And they all, without saying a word or even speaking the same language, can they all experience a certain depth of emotion or can they experience some connectedness from that experience. And maybe that connectedness is just a question. Like they're asking questions together or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something kind of powerful about that. That's not cerebralized. It's not, you know, strictly just like I am gathering information and now I am better because I gathered information. It's really coming from a different, a completely different place. Yeah. Um, a, a little more, uh, you know, non, formed uh, uh, very relative kind of thing. Well, it's not something you can efficiently consume. No. And everybody approaches it differently, Mm -hmm. so you can't wrap it in a neat package that everyone can buy and you know everyone's getting the same product. Yeah, because it's not really a product. It's really an an invitation, I think, to being more embodied and more human um, because we live in a disembodied reality with social media and, and with, uh, you know, digital content and the way we consume, uh, the, um, you know, how we consume what we think are relationships. Mm. And I say consume because it's, we're not participating in a relationship with social media. We're just consuming data in order to feel a certain way to tickle a part of our brain or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing with like content, like looking at a lot of pictures or whatever online is very different than standing in a space, a gallery space or, or a, a physical space with other people or just all by yourself yeah. in a room. Um, same thing with like listening to music. I mean, I think that like anybody that's been to a good concert, cause I know we've all been to bad concerts. Like you hear a band, <laughs> like you download something or you hear an album and, uh, you know, you hear this band and you're like, yo, these people are awesome. And then you go to the show and you're like, yo, these people are yeah. not awesome. Yeah. Uh, we've all had that experience. And hopefully we've all had the experience in, in which you've downloaded a song or you're like, you listen, you listen to an album and then you go to the show and you're like, yo, yes. I almost can't listen to that album anymore because that live experience and show the performance was so much more. Absolutely. And now the recording or the album or whatever, it just it just allows us to remember that experience, you know? And, and that's, I think, where really we might miss out a lot in a modern context of, like, 
there's a corporate reality of being human, like of participating in things together and in a physical space. Yeah. And yeah. we have to, I think, be kind of intentional about that now because it's just with with the Facebook machine, um, you know, like there are hundreds of people that their job is to figure out ways to make that website something that you will never want to leave. Like there, there are programmers that their job is to keep you on it as long as possible without leaving. Yeah, to make it addictive. To, to make yeah. it as addictive as possible. And, you know, I don't think we realize that a lot of times. And I'm in no way like I use social media. I love Instagram. But it 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 absorbs way too much of my life, you know? Yeah. And I always feel empty. I always feel empty because we're not built to sit in a room or sit on our couch, which I do too much. Ask my wife. Like I sit on the couch <laughs> thumbing through my phone too much, you know? And so I'm definitely talking to myself here and it's something that I haven't figured out yet, but there is a need to experience things together corporately, you know, whether that's meals or whatever, but there's a, we need to experience things together and, 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 and in an embodied way. Our bodies and our minds, our brains need it. We are pack animals. As much as I am a recluse by all intents, you know, like I really, yeah, yeah. once I go home, I kind of like hide away from the world. Like we're pack creatures. We we need to be in corporate things. And so I find that, you know, photography and music for me is is a way for me to to participate in sometimes these bigger, larger experiences with groups of people. Um as a, and I tend to desire to be the one delivering rather than receiving. Just, I just think that's how I'm built. Um, I want to be creating the thing, not just participating in the thing. Yeah. But that's not good or bad. That you know, like there's nothing better than playing a show and it be a packed house, even if it's a little, little tiny hole in the wall place and there's thirty people in there. But a packed house of people that really want to listen is a, gr- it's an amazing experience. I can be playing the same song and the same notes or whatever, and it's not the same. It's so contingent upon the people participating in that experience together. Okay. And so lest we belittle the participant and the listener um, in that experience, like that's their role in that is so, 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 so important. Like, cause it's, it, there's nothing more amazing than playing a show even again, even if it's 15 or 20 people, like one show we played one time, it was at this festival out on I-70 and I won't name the festival name or anything, but it was in the middle of the night, it was pouring rain. I mean, I remember standing on in this field and I was above my ankle in water. Like it was that much rain, dumping rain. And we loaded in to play this set and I was just like, this is going to be a nightmare. It was cold, like I think it was like 50 degrees outside or 40 degrees pouring rain and they had a couple of tents set up right in the front of the stage and there was like 15 people pitch dark outside 15 people standing in the rain to listen to us play and their excitement and just their their willingness to participate in that with us even those 15 people in like the worst environment to play in we played our hearts out and it was so much fun you know like all the discomfort faded away, all the rain, all that. Those 15 people made the show. It wasn't us. You know, like we were feeding off of the audience. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that's 
sometimes we forget that like it's it's a corporate event you know it's 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 a it's a communal event when you're on stage playing the people in the in the crowd are just as important as you are on stage mm, wow. um because you're having that experience together and and there's just something really special about that you know and in, in whatever the art form is um so i mean that's again that's one of my favorite things about playing music is just having that experience with a group of people together and being able to like have a you know have a have a something that I'm playing in that you know have a yeah. part really a part in that uh, is is a really great experience. I think you just answered something I've been trying to figure out for months. I've been <laughs> trying to figure out, and I, I've been mulling it over and like trying to I don't know. I mean I've tried to write out the way that I think about it, and I've tried to talk to people about it, and it, I haven't been able to articulate it. And I think you just hit it. What makes live music better than recorded music because intuitively i think there is a hierarchy and i think there's something in live music that you can't get in a studio but i haven't been able to figure out what that is so so my my music experience is mostly in a church context as you know and i have noticed that church music is one of the only places now in our society where you consistently get exposed to live music. Mm-hmm. Like throughout the week, six days of the week, people get things that have been doctored and edited in a studio. And it's a completely different feel. But it's also like, it's also individualized. So it's the, it's what it, whatever, whatever makes the best music to you you're listening to the top 1% of that all week. Because mm-hmm. however however much music is on iTunes or Spotify, <laughs> there's no way that you listen to all of it, right? You're listening to the top 1% of whatever makes it the top 1% for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you come to church, and of course the music doesn't sound as good, right? Of course the quality is 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 not as good by whatever categories you were going off of six days out of the week. Um, but I still think that there's something there that you can't get the other six days of the week, and I haven't been able to put my finger on what it is. So you're saying that it has to do with the the relationship aspect of it. Totally. It's the audience. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and I really, I think about, um, I don't know, and this is something that I learned from a tr- playing in church and especially playing music at Christ Community Church, like where, mm-hmm. where we played music together is is that, um, cause there, it was the first church that I ever played at where there was no sound system and there was no, yeah. there was no stage in a metaphorical sense. Like there was not, the band was, wasn't louder than anyone else necessarily. Yeah. Like no you light system, sing, no lights, no nothing. It was just yeah. real stripped down. Um, and so like, if you wanted to be loud, like on stage and you just had to play really loud. Yeah. And if, but if you're in the audience, you can't hide under the. Nor no no one really wants to like hide and be entertained necessarily, and that's you know that's the same it's the exact same thing in a secular context or any other context. I mean I think music as a, as a form, uh, you know I think that there's a sacred aspect to music for sure and can be used in a sacred context. But I think some of those the parts of the language of how music works is there's a certain universalness to it. Yes, there's, there is yes. a reason that people go to concerts to participate in this and to sing songs together, you know? And, yeah. and, you know, we could probably have a deep theological discussion in which I'm probably not as, as 
equipped, you know, like just because that's some, you know, like theologically speaking, I'm not a theologian. You know, I can just make some assertions based upon my experiences and from watching. Um, But I would say that there is this longing to have this, this group communal experience and the church provides that. And I would say that's probably one of the focal points of that experience is, is because that is a deep longing I think that we have in music becomes very powerful in yeah, that yeah. it's not, and again, like you've played church services where you've been the leader and then the people haven't responded at all. Exactly. Yeah, they don't yeah, participate. Sure. They don't sing. They're there listening. And that's the, it's not the best. It, I'm not going right. to say it's the worst, but it's right. not the, it's not great. Yeah. And yeah. well, I it almost that, becomes a different, it's, it's a different thing entirely. Yeah. It's not even the same category, even though you're in the same space and it's the same people. It's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. And I would say even in secular, because I mean, the band that I play in is a secular band, you yeah. know, like I think I'm the only person of faith in that band, like for sure. And everybody knows it. Like we're all very straightforward with each other, you know, like it's mm-hmm. not a, um, that's not really the goal, you know, of the band. Um, like it's to play music and, you know, I'm supporting the front man and his endeavors. Um, but I've noticed though, even in a secular context, the same thing kind of exists where if you're playing a show and everyone is is like being at the symphony where they're all sitting and listening, um, I mean it has a it, there's a certain thing there that that is interesting maybe, but the most interesting thing is when you're playing and you look over and somebody in the front row is singing the words to the song that yeah. you're playing. Yeah, you're like oh they know this, and then when when they're singing and when they're clapping and when they're joining with you like a choir, that's when it's really magic. Mm-hmm. And you know I think that's that's something that the church has done since the beginning of the church is yeah. like music is not to be, it's not entertainment. It's not like, it's not to be broadcast and then you sit there and you listen to it. It's to be participated in together. And I think even in the secular world, like in the secular, you know, the non sacred context of music for my own experience, that's when it's very special as yeah, well. It's yeah. the same thing is happening. And yeah. so that's what kind of leads me to have some of these thoughts is like there's a certain, it's how we're built, it's how we're made that we desire these, or that, that something special happens here that is not so quantifiable, you know? It's not, it's hard to, mm-hmm. it's hard to say. And, and you can listen to a live album too, and the same thing kind of happens. Like you can listen to, uh, and I like listening to live albums, but it's not the same. You can be at a concert and you can hear the recording of the concert later and you're like, ah, this recording just isn't yeah. that good, yeah. you know? But when I was there, it was really good, you know? And it, 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 again, like, we're too stuck on, like, quantifying things, I think, and not about, like, the importance of the actual experience of, mm-hmm. of things, you know? Like, I don't want to be, like, a relativist and, like, everything is about your experiences and that's the only thing that matters. I would never say that. But there are certain things in our lives that are really you know, innately experiential and, and, and that should give them value. They have, have value be just in the experience of them. Yeah. Um, because like you go to a good show and experiencing that corporately together, um, a recording isn't going to capture that because the recording can't capture the, the room. It mm-hmm. can't capture the feeling, the smell, what it looked like, who was with you when you were there, the person behind you that, you know, obviously hadn't had a bath in like a week and like, it's really annoying, but you ignore it so that you can participate, you know, like yeah, all yeah. these other experiential um, sensory factors that, that make that, that 
that thing happen, you know? Um, again, that's why I, I kind of have a lot of anxiety about like what social media and everything being internet based does to us because it kills so many of our senses, you know, like mm. we can't, ex it really isolates down our eyes and our ears and that's it. And not really even our fingers because we touch mm. this like flat, cold device, you know, <laughs> unless yeah. you have whatever, yeah. like a Hello Kitty cover on your phone and it's furry. Maybe then you have a better experience. Small piece of redemption. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought it would come from Hello Kitty. Hello Kitty apparently is powerful in the world. Uh, apparently at this stage. Man. Um, you said something that triggered this, this thought. Now I'm trying to reel it back in. I guess this is, I guess this would be an invitation for people who are experimenting in the music world. If you want to step up your game, make it about other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Instead of the... just playing in your bedroom, you know, play with others. Play the kind of music that people around you can relate to, where yeah, it's mean, not just about you. There, you know, it's it's hard to say with, because I think there is a certain measure of things that are, things that are, I think, really, really personal are universal. I mean, I think things that are, if you're only looking at making music for other people, you miss, you know, the, I, I believe the more specific and the more personal, the more universal it really is because it taps mm -hmm. into vulnerability and it, and it, uh, you're open to people and showing that like, this is, you know, who I am and how I feel and what I think. And sometimes that's flawed and sometimes that makes people angry and sometimes people disagree and sometimes they agree. Uh, I mean, the bands, there's a, like one particular group locally that I feel like every conversation I have with them is just about like, the goal of what we're doing is to to make it. And and we and now we're like, we're not playing as many live shows. We're really trying to focus on the social media thing or we're really trying, you know, it's like, but like, where's your heart? Like, what are you sharing that is so personal because that's vulnerable? And like, yeah, I mean, if you want to do, a, if you want to be, professional in the sense that you make money in order to sustain your your existence with your craft you of course need to be aware of your audience of course right. of course but if you're only aware of your audience and you're only writing for your audience it's impossible how can you know what millions of people want it's just you barely know what you want at a given time mm -hmm. like how can you know what other people want so i think there is a deeply personal thing i think that that you just have to have the vulnerability to express that in a public and corporate way with mindfulness. Um, okay. and it's, it's a, it's a balancing act, you know, it's not a, it's not a one or the other. I think there's a, <clears throat> there's a grayness to some of this, to where, how we exist, because if we swing too far one way into only focusing on the, the, everyone else, then we miss an opportunity to actually share a moment, uh, share vulnerability, which is really the, I think one of the greatest fears of the musician, of a writer, of an artist is that like, I think, you know, there's a lot of success that can be built just on vulnerability and, and a willingness to be vulnerable, you know, with people. But that means when you fail, that it hurts real bad. Mm -hmm. it, it stings. Like when you're vulnerable and you share parts of yourself that you're afraid to share, like, it's really, really painful. So, I remember seeing uh, a video of Ed Sheeran playing live music one time. He had a T-shirt that said "Authentic" on it. 
Cute. <laughs> just a black shirt, authentic. I was like, okay, I know what you're going for. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's a little too on the yeah. nose. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I mean, like that's one side. Like that's one. If you're only focusing on the on the out uh, on everyone else, like right. you're, I think you're you're really missing it. Right. Also, if you're only focusing on self and it's only about yourself and your own thing, then you fall into this like what I'm trying to understand is the vlog culture. I don't know if you're very familiar, like if you watch any of these things, but there's this huge trend now of like, even like camera companies are developing cameras just for people to videotape themselves talking about typically nothing, nothing. And I have like, Mm -hmm. in any given class that I teach, I think I have like 20 or 30% of the students in the class have a vlog. And like, I, you know, I don't want to like crush somebody else's creative thing, but I think that there's now a culture of, I have a camera and I have a voice and whatever I'm doing, my, my normal life is important. It's so, it's like navel gazing to an extreme degree that is so unaware of anything around or the culture that we exist in or the people around us or that like, why should we care? You know, so unless I don't want, you know, the listeners to only hear the very frou-frou, uh, art, sweet part of me. Because yeah. honestly, like, that is always balanced out by, like, why should anyone care what you think or what you believe or what you sound like or what you have to say? Why should anyone care? That's a good, good question. I yeah. think any creative person, they need to balance their own personal stuff, their vulnerability with why should anyone care? And that's a new kind of bravery right there. You know, that there's a certain ignorance that goes along with like, well, I am a person and I deserve to tell people about the eggs that I ate this morning. or I deserve to tell people about, you know, my morning routine or my makeup ritual or my was like, no, no, you don't deserve that. Mm. You know, to be to have a to be able to stand on a box, to be able to stand on a box and broadcast to those around you holds a certain weight to it and you need to respect that even if you can do it yeah even if you can stand on a box and broadcast to people like you need to think about if you should do that it, yeah. what do you have to say yeah. like what do you have to say what's at stake here um and you know i so i mean i follow a couple of like i don't know if they would be vlogs but like user created video series and things like that and i love that that's that's you can do that now I mean, when I was in college, that's not, that wasn't a thing. Like, you couldn't produce your own show. Basically, you make your own and then broadcast it, like, on YouTube. And even though, you know, that just because you can put it on YouTube doesn't make it good or it doesn't yeah. mean people are going to see it. But yeah. people can see those things now, like, from anywhere in the world. Uh, and I think that's that's an amazing, powerful thing. But that also comes with the backside of, like, someone assumes because they can that they should. It's the old, you know, just because it fits does not mean you should wear it, you know, kind right, of thing. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we have to have some criticism uh, too. And so it, we exist in the in between um, with, uh, you know, with sharing things. Is it public or personal? Um, personal things should be kept personal, but also some personal things by putting them out there create an environment of vulnerability for, for a group of people that is so, so powerful. It's really, yeah. really powerful. And I think that the word vulnerability is something that we need to reclaim and like really define what is vulnerability in a modern context because 
these like vlogs and social media, it has the illusion of vulnerability, right? It has the illusion of like, this is my life and this is how my life really is. But all that is actually smoke and mirrors. You know, any of the people that have their, you know, like the Instagram accounts where it's like, I get in my, you know, my SUV with my dog and we like camp out in national parks. And I have this like very, you know, I climb all the time and I have this like very great life. And oh, and I drink this product to help me replenish my energy. You know, all of that is a lie. It looks like vulnerability. It looks like this is my real life, but it's really a lie. It's all a lie. It's all an advertisement. It's a t-shirt that says authentic it's on it. It's a t-shirt that says authentic on it. Yeah. And it's like, I want to see authentic. I want to see you bleed. Like, I want to see authentic, you know? And and I I think we have to figure out what is vulnerability again. You know, like, what really is it? And what is, what is it vulnerability? And how do we help people understand that by just doing a thing that you saw on YouTube, by like broadcasting your own self because you see a thing, it's like, well, that looks like a thing that people care about, or people will think I'm important if I share my life. But I'm gonna, cr- I'm gonna critique and like edit my life down into this like formula that appears to be vulnerable, but it's yeah. not vulnerable yeah. at all. Um, you know, like we've got to have that conversation, start to figure out like what is true vulnerability because. Um, you know, like it has to start relationally. It has to start with individuals being vulnerable with each other. And this yeah. is, again, I'm speaking to myself. Like, right, right. how can I, as, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a teacher, um, be vulnerable with people knowing, knowing that that means that I'm going to get my heart broken and I'm knowing that, that it's going to be painful, you know, um, but that I can't truly be human unless I am vulnerable. And, you know, like, again, going back to music or art or whatever, like, I tend to gravitate towards things that there is a certain amount of vulnerability in that remind me what it's like to be human. It reminds me what it's like to be flawed, to be broken at times, to be hopeful at times, you know? I mean, hope is another amount of vulnerability, real true hope despite, yeah. you know, the ugly world that we often live in. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, we have a great opportunity to reclaim vulnerability, um, but how that happens in a modern context is really going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how, how it works out, because I really don't know. Um, I, yeah, I just don't know. Well, I think, I think some people, if they hear you say that, they might think, okay, be more vulnerable. How, how, could, how do I do that with the things that I'm posting? How can I add more authenticity? Yeah. And what I'm hearing with what you're saying is sometimes it's more authentic and it's more vulnerable to just step back from the whole the whole machine oh, in yeah. the first place. Yeah. You know, maybe it's more authentic and more vulnerable to stop trying to get likes in the first place. Yeah. Because I mean, let's be honest, we all want the likes. We all want it. Whether it's literally the likes or, you know, whether you're you're on a on your on a, the first date with somebody, yeah, and you're sitting across the table at dinner, and you know, like reading their body language, and your brain is processing all this data that is saying, "Do they like me? Do they want me? Do they hate me? Did I do something wrong? Did I do something right?" You know, your brain because we long we long for not just community, but but someone to care for us and care about us and care about you know us fully. That means all the bad stuff too, um, and my worry is that 
this false sense of vulnerability through social media and, and through, you know, personal public relations, public personal PR or individual PR um, mm-hmm. gives such a false sense of vulnerability and community. Those, those little likes, you know, it gives us a false sense that somebody actually accepts us for where we are and who we are with all of our scars and with all of our joys and all these things that at the end of the day, there's still this deep emptiness within us, you know, because I think there's, you know, different compartments of emptiness in existence. I mean, I can't say that everyone longs for God. I can't say that. I don't know that to be certain. I've heard people say that a lot, but I don't know if that's true. Right. I know for my own self, it is a reality that I do long for, for, for God, for, for this, this grand being that I, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around. And I, and I, so I, I personally have that, that longing or that kind of like empty feeling, but that's not the same as the longing and the empty feeling I feel for like my family, my wife, like the desire for it to, to have someone that sees me for who I am and still loves me and that, that I can see them for who they are and still love them. And that's a challenge. That's an always an ongoing challenge that we work on and work through, but that's a deep longing that I always had. And again, I don't think everybody has that longing. I don't think everybody should like get married and have kids and like, that's not for everybody. And, and, uh, like being single, you can get a lot done being single, you know? So, you know, we, Maybe I can't say that we all have the same types of longings, but there is some huge overlaps, I think, yeah. that if we look at social media, it gives us uh, you know, the it gives us the 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 fake fruit. You know, it's like you walk right. to a table and right. you look and there's a luscious bowl of fruit on the table and you're like, yo, I could really go for an apple right now and you pick it up and it looks like an apple and then you bite into it and it's wax. And that's what social media does for us emotionally. Um it it looks, you know, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know, swims like a duck, but it sure don't taste like a duck, mm. you know? Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I like I like ducks. They take <laughs> duck is a delicious meat. It is delicious. It is delicious. Uh, I've only had it once, but it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um so I you know that 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 worries me a lot cuz I wonder how many people miss out on vulnerable relationships with yeah. people with whether that's a uh, you know like a like a spousal type instance or friendships or church or a community or or you know whatever right um because they eat enough of the wax fruit to almost make them feel like that yeah. that's enough but they right. don't know why they're not full or they don't know why they're you know they don't know why they're still empty mm-hmm because they're eating wax, you know, but they yeah. don't know. And, and it, and it's because there's that whole system is set up to do that. Like literally social media, again, hundreds of programmers have designed this to activate parts of literally parts of your brain to eject chemicals in your brain, to replicate certain experiences. Some of them on creative, like the, I set through a, a workshop here at union about how like, looking at your phone and interacting with like a screen basically activates certain brain waves in your brain. That is where your creative um, faculties are basically like it's where the, the creative part of your brain exists and, huh. and where creativity comes from. And it satiates that so that you're not creating anything, 
but you don't have the feeling of accomplishment of creation either. So it's the same part of the brain that would activate if you're writing poetry or yeah. playing music? Yeah. Totally. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All of like... It, it, Do you remember what part of the brain that is? I'd I mean, be really interested to learn more about yeah, that. Yeah, I would have to look up the notes from, it was like a year or two ago. Okay. Um, but I want to say it's like a certain, like the beta waves or something like that okay. of, of your brain. I'm, I shouldn't speak to it overly because, again, that's not, I try to stay in my wheelhouse as much as possible. I'm yeah. not a scientist. Okay, yeah. I think I wanna, science is important. I wanna, though, so. I wanna, whatever that is, I want to figure it out because that's that's really interesting. And I haven't I, heard that before. I've experienced this personally, too. Whenever I'm in lulls creatively, when I... If you want to see me in my most unhealthy moments, it's when I'm consuming a ton of social media and like watching wow. tons of YouTube videos and stuff. Okay. Because my brain, especially like I'm a I'm a tweaked out creative person, like my brain has to be making and creating and building all the time. Uh-huh. So much so that it's it gives me a lot of anxiety and a lot, you know, like I I'm not a well-adjusted human most of the time. So, you know, but I found like that and I didn't mean to, and I don't like it, but like I will keep the at bay by forcing this this like empty emptiness upon it, so that it it almost like satiates it a little bit. But I still go to bed at night feeling like I've done nothing, you know, feeling so empty. But through the day, it's enough to kind of like satiate that 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 part of my brain, which is really scary because like sometimes you kind of need to feel like garbage. And you need to feel, you need to just like be feeling like longing, like I need to make something and I, and figure out a way to make whatever it is you need to make. Like if yeah. you're a, if you're a musician, maybe you can't play music right now. Maybe you need to like, I don't know, go paint a picture or go like cook a nice meal or, uh, you know, I don't know, find some other creative outlet. Like I like working on my old truck and that's like something that activates my brain in a physical way that is better than social media. It maybe it's not inherently creative, but it activates and makes it satiates that part of my brain, I think in a more constructive way. Yeah. So, you know, again, and there's not instantaneous feedback. Yeah, exactly. It, and, and, and there's not like, it's not something that's dictated by an algorithm mm-hmm. or by however fickle someone is by double tapping on a thing on their phone. Like, who cares? I mean, like, really, I mean, I feel it all the time. I look at how many likes or whatever my thing and my picture has gotten yeah. because I want some, I want affirmation. I want someone to like, you know, I want, I want to feel affirmed in that. But I mean, I just realized the other day that like there's algorithms in Instagram that keep you from seeing, like you can be following someone on Instagram and not see any of their photos. You might only see like one out of five of right. their images. Right. So it's like we sit and we wait for people to give us like affirmation and they've made it to where people can't even see your stuff to even yeah. give you affirmation. And then just the gesture of like affirming someone is like, I'm going to make a tap on my phone. And that is, come on, that means nothing. It means nothing. But we feel like it means something. Mm-hmm. When you see that name of someone that liked your thing and like, well, I respect that person. You know, for me, it's like a curator. Like if a curator's following me on Instagram and they, they like one of my pictures, like, oh my, um, yeah. I feel like slightly affirmed in my existence as an artist, you right, know? Right, right. Which they might have just been eating a sandwich and flipping through Instagram, like, okay, there we go, boo, and then like, but it's it's what our brains desire. And the more that we, we feed into that thing, that addiction of social media, because it is, it's created to be addictive and it is addictive because our brains right. build the dependency, right? 
It's just like when you eat candy all day long, like, yeah, you're going to feel sick, but the more candy you eat the next day, it's like, you kind of want that much, you know, there's a certain like, because it satiates a part of your body that desires certain things. And, you know, when we were hunter gatherers, you know, like if you found something that was really rich in fats and things like your, your body's built to want that because it would build fat. And so you can survive the winter, you know, like there's certain like satiation things that our bodies desire that they're designed to do that never took into account modernity and like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Like in technology, you know? And so, um, yeah, we are not, we are not adapted for this kind of environment. No, at all. Uh, and, and you know, I don't, I don't know what that's going to mean. I don't know what's going to look like, you know, I don't know what that, you know, I I was in class the other day, and I was like, "Have has everybody in the class seen Wally or Wally?" I always say Wall E, you know, because it has a little dash in the E. That's how it should like, be. It looks yeah, like, yeah. that's what, how it should be. And you know, that's the movie I'm talking about. Too, oh, when yeah. I say it the wrong way, uh, and of course, some kids you got to say it in that voice yeah. too. Yeah, Wally. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> and you know, some of the students looked at me like, "Are you crazy?" And I was on some tirade like this. You know, and I was yeah. like, "If you haven't seen that movie, you need to see that movie. It's a brilliant it's movie. Absolutely brilliant yeah. on many, many, many levels." And it's easy to understand. It's easy to consume. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. It I don't is think a, there's any dialogue for the first like 20, 30 minutes of no. the whole movie. And it's super powerful. I yeah. mean, like you get that like, oh, the way that we're living our modern lives is having an effect on the earth that we live on, yeah. which is such a precious thing, you know, like, and it's, we're responsible for this place that we live and... And, you know, I don't even know how to fully go there yet um, for my own self and my own, like, living on the earth. But also, like, how we interact with one another, how we consume things. Like, the further we get into looking at a screen and not at another human, like, the more we isolate, you know. it. And, you know, I don't know about the whole, like, people are floating around on chairs and they weigh, like, 500 pounds. Like, that might be a little too much, you know. That's kind of like, it's making people that have a different body type, probably look like they've done something wrong in their life, which I'm really against that. Like, I don't, sure, sure. I don't want to even want to get into the, the body image thing, you know, like yeah. just because you're skinny or fat doesn't mean that you've done something wrong in your life for yeah. me, you know, but the least. relational aspect, but the relational aspect that it talks about is I think the focal yeah. point of, yeah. of why that movie is really, really important. Well, know? there's that moment where, um, one of the human characters accidentally touch each other yeah and you can tell in their eyes they've never touched a human being before yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i mean it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and 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 it's true like i if we don't be intentional if we don't like really consider what we're doing right now like we're heading in that direction as crazy as that movie you know as like obtuse as that movie is there's so much truth to it and yeah and that doesn't mean that that is going to be our future is like flying around in a spaceship while robots uh, take care of all the, the garbage on the earth and we never actually have a human relationship. Um, but if you were just going to look at how people interact with each other and how we're living our lives as Americans, yeah, you could probably make a good argument, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a little frightening and not just frightening. It's just sad. It's really sad because, you know, like vulnerability is scary. And it's tough. And I've been burned many times. And I've burned people. I really have burned people. It's the thing about getting a little older. You realize how many dumb 
decision you made, decisions you made with relationships and how you treated people wrong. And at the time you felt like you were in the right and you realized like, I was a jerk. I was terrible to Mm. this person and I can't take that back. But you know, like you got to get in and play ball. Like you got to get some skin in the game. Um, I think that's the only way to have like a true human full existence is, is, you know, there's going to, Breaking is unavoidable. Either you being broken or you breaking someone else's is unavoidable. And that's how we learn how to, like, be with people that we don't agree with. And, like, even thinking about our current political systems and the tribalization of our country and how, you know, like, even 10 years ago, like, I feel like we've become even more tribalized, like, draw a line in the sand, you're this party or you're this, that, or you're, you're, um, of this economic class or, you know, like there's more of that happening and it's being exacerbated by the fact that we, we don't know how to hurt each other well. And, and Mm -hmm. we don't know how to, um, live in a place where we don't agree with someone else or we, or, or we're offended by someone else or, whatever that thing may be like we're waiting to be offended because we're not accustomed i think as well as generations before us of the reality of human existence of the reality of who we are as people yeah um and uh that is a little a little unnerving for sure it's a little unnerving um again we just have to be more intentional about how we participate in life together yeah and well, not just with people we agree with, and not just with people that 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 tell us what we want to hear. So, so one of the boundaries that existed before was uh, was physical space and mm-hmm. distance, and that helped to moderate a lot of the conversations happening all over the world. Yeah, and in the absence of that, having having boundaries somewhere in the conversation is inevitable because you need boundaries. Everybody has a voice now, so there has to be some sort of limiting factor. And in a space where the currency is like and dislike, it would make sense that that's where the boundary would show up mm-hmm. in in the like-dislike atmosphere. So things naturally get way more heated. I have noticed, and I'm sure you've thought way more about this than I have, but I have noticed that on Twitter my relationship with someone like you who i know personally i could sit down and have an hour long conversation with that gets reduced to the same relationship that i have with the president of the united states yeah right who Which really should no not relation. spend as much time on twitter as he does <laughs> or any maybe yeah, right it reduces it to to this this consumption dynamic mm-hmm. right and i feel like i know the president personally but I don't. He doesn't know who I am. Mm-hmm. I would never be able to sit down with him like I'm talking with you. And maybe there should be more of a distance between myself and the president. Like maybe that accessibility to know what he's thinking at all times isn't a healthy thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, it's, um, I mean, I have a four-year-old, right? And so you learn a lot about humanity by, with kids around, you know, like yeah. just how they, how they, talk, you know, we can be out somewhere. And I remember when we were at a restaurant or something and one of the waiters, um, he had a, you know, scar on his face and he had a limp and, you know, like he just, for her experience, 
she had never seen someone with a large scar on their face and that had a limp before. Yeah. And so she pointed it out and was like, hey, dad, look at that. And look at and while he's right there. And, you know, of course, I'm like, hey, hey, chill, you know. Yeah. yeah. But then I have to also think about, like, why and and why, how I'm communicating that to her and how to, you know, the space to have conversations and 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 not also not saying that, oh, because that person is different than you, then they're bad and we should be embarrassed and pity them and, and try to, like, not bring it up. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that's right either. Um, but how to see value in people. But there's a certain personal moderation, right? Like, we don't just tap into the id part of our brain and let the, just let the river flow, let, you know, yeah. open up the pipeline to our id and let it do everything it's going to do. It's, an, it's n- not healthy to try to think that we're going to make everyone at a, like, base level think rightly about one another and, and with each other. That we're going to, you know, like, that I'm... I don't know that it's attainable for me to never not have a little bit of a, a racial problem within me because of my experiences, because of the way uh, some of the in, things I was exposed to when I was a kid, and some of my family members. Thankfully, not my like not my immediate family, but yeah. um, there are certain like racial biases that even are not necessarily ill conceived, but that are biases that are so unhealthy and unfair that And that's a vulnerable an ongoing, thing to say in today's it's an society. ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah. Well I mean like I would not want any of my friends that you know, my my black friends or my Latino friends, uh, to to I would be lying to them if I said that like I was a pure vessel and didn't have any, right. you know, like um messed up stuff in my head. The thing is I'm intentionally trying to moderate yeah. how I participate in the world. Yeah. And I'm trying to sometimes even over overwork because I care about my I care about my friends. I care about, you know, um people just in general have value. And so it's easy to say that, but it's a lot harder to think that that comes out in how I participate in our our life together. And the problem you I mean you hit it right on the head of like a leader of of our country having just tapped right into their id and there's no filter. There's just like, well, this is what I think. I mean, I read a tweet, uh, yesterday that was like the president posted about the hurricane coming through Puerto Rico. And it was like, it was kind of nice. It was like, you know, like if this happens, we're going to have FEMA, you know, like we're, we'll be ready if this happens. And then at the very end, it was like, but I, I hope that the mayor is not, you know, irresponsible or he, he like had a stab at the, at the, you know, the, uh, whatever the, the governor of some area in Puerto Rico. And it's like, why would you do that? Obviously there's not a part of your brain that says, maybe I should be respectful in some way, even if I don't agree or I'm angry or this person is not for me, you know? And, and I think that, you know, again, I don't want to be like, no, I don't care. I'm going to be, I have political beliefs and I think it's important to care. And, and I think that we have to come to a place of, of talking about these things. Um, I think that that Trump is the exact president that we deserve. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, you know, I and the fact that I can have conversations with people and, and they, you know, I remember talking to this one person and we were talking about how like something that was said was like like this is a, this is a flagrant lie that, that is being said and broadcast and because there's actual data and information that says like this is not true 
And their response was, well, at least we know what to expect. We, at least we know he's a liar. And it's like, that's not okay. <laughs> that's not, that's not a good reason. Like, yeah. yeah, you can, you can like babysit my kids. I know that you're a murderer or a pedophile, but at least I know you can still babysit my kids. Like, no, no, I don't think so. That's uh-huh. not, that, that would not be a thing. And that's an extreme thing, you know, right. that's definitely an extreme right. thing. But we've gotten, we've, we champion the idea of realness. Oh, keeping it real, again, as the fake vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, at least I know what he, at least I know that he does this or does that. And, you know, that's ratcheted up across the political spectrum. Like, I'm not pointing fingers at the Republicans, but they've really, right. really screwed up. Right. I mean, and the same things are happening in the Democrat camp and things like that of, like, ratcheting up um, who's the most ostentatious, keeping it real person sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember seeing um, a video when I think it was McCain and Obama were running against each other whenever that was, what, eight and many years ago at this point. And, uh, and McCain was in a, in a debate and, uh, and someone in the audience was like, so what are you going to do about, you know, this birth certificate that Obama's not from, you know, wasn't born in the United States and just calmly and like really delicately, he said, no, I know Senator Obama and, uh, I, and that's not true. You know, that's just not a true statement. And we want to be respectful, and, and you know, there was some there was some dignity, mm-hmm. you know. There, and and yeah, Mc, McCain wanted to win at all costs for sure, just like Obama wanted to win at all costs. Like that was, an, we all, everybody knows. I mean, they they're very clear about that. Yeah. But the, but having having some sort of dignity and having some sort of respect for someone else that you don't agree with has been completely jettisoned for the idea of quote unquote realness. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, lest I get myself in trouble, there's a kind of a interesting skit that was done by Dave Chappelle called keeping it real. And in keeping it real, it's like he would, he was like play these different characters. One of them, like he was working at this job and somebody said something to him that was like, I think maybe racial or something. And he just like goes off on his boss. And it was like, when keeping it real goes wrong. And so he feels all proud and then he gets fired and he's working at a gas station then, you know, yeah. Now, that was comedy, but we've championed keeping it real so much that we forget that, like, public discourse and relationships in general are not keeping it real. If you are married to, if if you are married and you think that you can sit down with your spouse and tell them exactly what you think exactly in that moment, whenever you think it, you are in for a world of hurt. This is so true. You're in a world of hurt. Yeah. Because culturally speaking, we say that, well, if you don't, if you're not totally transparent with me, then you're lying to me. It's like, it's not that simple. Okay. That's assuming that everything I have to say Mm. is good and pure and like has a positive outcome. But I know myself, I'm a jerk. Yeah. And I am mean sometimes. Yeah. And passive aggressive and angry and vindictive and all these things. Right. And I there there has to be a, a filtering system for right. our id, right. you know? Yeah. Why do we think that there shouldn't be? This doesn't it doesn't make sense. And 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 you know, again, going back to a marital relationship, I think like for my wife and I both, like when we realize that like, oh, in this moment, I don't need to just tell you exactly what I think. 
Like, I need to sit on this. I need to think about this. And then I need to really be mindful of how we talk about this and how I talk about how I feel and think and be honest, but like, don't be brutal, Mm -hmm. you know? And because our desire when we're defensive is to attack. And that happens on, you know, uh, you know, from a spousal relational level all the way up to public discourse. Yeah. Is like, yeah, I'm defensive and I'm going to, I'm going to bristle and bow up and attack. And that's just not how things happen. Like, you know, I've never changed my mind on something because someone was attacking me. Cause if you attack someone, they're going to get defensive and attack back. You don't change anybody's hearts and minds by attacking them. You know, like just not, not the way it works. Right. So, you know, I, 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 again, have a lot of concerns with, with how, and you're right, like, there was a time to where you didn't hear about everything, and everyone was kind of spread out across the United States of the world, and you didn't know what was going on all the time, and now we have 24-hour news, and you feel like you know what's going on all the time, um, which is, you know... There's good and bad. I read the news and I keep up with the news as best I can. And sometimes mm-hmm. I have to be like, okay, I got to turn NPR off or I got to turn something off. I need to listen to some country music and just like not think about the woes of the world. You know, like you have to have some kind of moderation there for sure. But now that, you know, you could argue that there's always been tribes in America, you know, yeah. like re- where it's regional or whatever, like. There weren't the good old days. The golden days never existed. You know, people look back on the 50s and 60s and they're like, man, why can't people, why can't things be nice white picket fences and pure? And it's like, yeah, it was nice if you were middle class and white. But if you weren't middle class and white, if you were black in the 50s, the 50s were terrible. It was a horrible time. And it's better now than it is then, you know? Yeah. So we don't need to think about a golden age, but there are some inherent things that we have to work through with yeah. now we can actually hear every person's voice and yeah. we can, and in some way that's, that is a good thing. I mean, yeah. like, to be honest with you, like maybe I would never have thought about race and, and socioeconomic realities if I didn't have access to those voices and those, those thoughts, you know, it makes my life a lot more difficult and complicated. Um, but I feel like it's richer because of it, because I, did I realize that I'm a racist, that I think poorly, even of people that have a lot of wealth, you know, that I have these these presuppositions. Um, now, none of them are to the degree that I would ever have spoken illy about somebody to their face or even behind their back or, you know, or they're, they're not even to that extreme. But but having those voices has revealed biases that I have. And I'm, I am thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can hear a lot of people's voices, but the, like the need for discernment now is so much more the need to be able to discern what you're hearing and to listen to other perspectives and to consider the fact that you may be wrong. And that is a hard thing for most of us. Super, super hard. I mean, I know that when I have conversations with people in certain contexts, if I have conversations in in my classroom in a Baptist school, that I'm going to say some things, 
And somebody's going to say, well, he's a liberal. You know, they're going to like try to put me in a box. And it's like, no, I'm unaffiliated. But the fact that you had that immediate knee-jerk reaction means that we need to keep working on this because you have to discern. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to come to the same place. Right, but right. Having discernment of all these voices is so much more needed now. Yeah. You know, there's a criticalness that has to take place. And again, a vulnerability that you could be wrong. Yeah. Like what you think and how you believe and, and how you feel about things could be wrong. Or at least in, 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 the very le- in the very least that you may still hold a position that you hold, but you have compassion for someone in a different situation than you, you know, um, that, that a black and white issue is easy to be black and white. It's easy to be like a binary if you don't, if you haven't actually engaged with that person that yeah. it affects, right? Right. right. Like when we're making decisions on things. Um, and though I still hold my belief that maybe is over here that, that I, that this thing is still wrong for me. Like I didn't change my belief about that thing, but the way in which I speak to someone that believes differently and interact with them and have compassion, um, not pity, but compassion for someone. I mean, one of my students brought up like wanting to do a project that was against the abortion industry and he used the word industry. And I was like, whoa, 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 back down. I mean, like that word implies that there's literally like a factory in which babies are murdered, like bam, 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 bam. It's like, well, that's not what's happening. And though I'm not, I'm anti-abortion I, and, you know, like that's not something that I'm for. The reality is that there, there are a lot of people that make that decision because they don't think that there's any other option for them, you know, or yeah. they have gone through a really traumatic experience. And the thought of carrying around, and especially as a man, like I've never carried around a human in my body. Can you imagine carrying around a person in you for nine months that is a reminder of a horrible thing that happened to you. Um, I cannot understand the depth of pain that that is. So for me to walk into a public discourse and bow up and say, you know, like abortion is evil and you're evil for even talking about it. It's like, though I still think it's an evil thing. I think the reality is we live in an evil world and horrible things happen to people. And sometimes people do horrible things and evil things and they make those decisions. But if I can't come to a place of compassion for someone that, you know, I don't think anybody makes a decision to have an abortion lightly, you know, like that's a, I'm sure that is a very hard emotional decision to make. Um, And I'm not pro doing it at all, but we really, we really hurt so many people, ourselves included, when we vilify somebody that is already a victim in some way. And, and I, that's the first step. And I don't know that I've even made it past the first step, but the first step is compassion and humility. Yeah. yeah. And and be able to sit across the table from somebody and say somebody and say and have a conversation with, with them in which they don't immediately know what you what your side is. Mm-hmm. If you lead with well, this is what I think and you're not gonna change it, that doesn't really get us anywhere. And it doesn't it doesn't allow us to to work with someone's heart. Right. Which is really what we should be about, I think. Like because it's often more complicated than that. And that's a pretty complicated thing, you know? Um, and again, like I've had a lot of conversations with people and conversations with people that have had abortions, you know? And, yeah. and it breaks my heart. But to vilify someone like that, like you don't, and, and not having stood in their shoes in some way, you're, I think you're missing out on, on, on some very important things there. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, I think about when when Jesus uh, and there's a lady and the 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 crowd is gonna like stone her and kill her because I mean I think basically because you know she's a philanderer. And, you know, like there's a crowd of the dudes around and Jesus like writes something in the sand, you know, he writes something in the dirt and it never says what he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's like, well, you know, whoever doesn't have sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. You know, whoever. It's like, what did he write? Uh-huh. What was it? <laughs> you know? And they, so whatever happened there, it was, it, it shocked those, those guys enough that they're like, no, nah, good. I'm good. I'm out. You know? And then Jesus turns to this woman that would be a pariah. And I don't know why we think about the Bible as like. We think about like, oh yeah, I understand Jesus was merciful with this lady, and I have mercy for her in my heart. And then you see somebody that is in the same type of situation, and you cast stones at them mm-hmm. in a modern context. Yeah, you know, Jesus says like, technically, I'm the only one that can hit you with a rock right now. Just so we all understand, like, I'm the only one that can stone you, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you and forgive you. I want to try to help you be relieved. Of, yeah. of these tragedies, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that 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 seems so rudimentary and basic, but yeah. how often does that actually impact the way we relate and talk to people that we don't agree with or that we think are doing evil things, you know? It's not about, like, what your favorite brand of coffee. I'm talking about people that, yeah. like, are supporting um, horrible, horrible things, yeah. you know, locking kids up into cages or, uh, you know, like there's a broad spectrum of things that like, at least on a political level, like I don't adhere to either party and I don't ever think that'll be a thing, you know, cause I don't agree with certain things and there's certain things I do agree with, you know, whatever. Um, but if we are to grab a party and a carte blanche and say like, well, I'm a Republican and this is what I stand for and like slash and burn everything else. It's like, well, you obviously don't know what they stand for because they're directly in violation to your belief system in certain ways. And the same for the democratic party, there's Mm -hmm. definitely things that they, that they are part of that are directly against the things that you believe in. And again, like to invite someone to that place is to invite someone to like, have to deal with the fact that like there isn't a, there isn't a perfect way here. You know, there's not a, there's not a compartment for this and we have to have discernment. Discernment and vulnerability are so important in our modern context. And, and that takes, takes a lot of work. It really, really does. Yeah. And, and I don't know that even, I don't know how to be right. I don't know that that should be the goal is to be right. I think that the goal should be is to, to understand and to have compassion, you know, and, uh, that's tough. That's real tough. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, you can't do it in 140 characters. <laughs> Darn too. It's, it's impossible. Uh, I really like that story the, from the Gospels that you brought up because it's a great example of, of amazing grace and at the same time a call to be better because what he says is, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Yeah. It's like, how do you balance both of those? Yeah. It's like, I can only do one at a time. You know, how, how do you... How do you tell someone, you know, you're not living life the way you're supposed to? You know, I, I can see this area that needs to be improved, but also show you this incredible grace at the same time. That's almost impossible to do. Well, what I've kind of come to some kind of central ground on dealing with that is is that uh, I think it's something that like Walton Pedelford said a while back is that we often think of, like, 
the commandments of, of Christ or the Ten Commandments or like kind of the, the rules of Christianity as you do this to make God happy. We don't say it that way, but right. that's kind of what we that's kind of how we think about it. And that our choice is we can make ourselves happy or we can make God happy. And so we're combating with this idea of like, you know, who which dog are you going to feed? You know, like which, which what's going to be happier myself or God? And I think that's actually the wrong perspective. I think that and granted like doing certain you know, sinful things causes an amount of satiation, you know, like there's a certain pleasure thing that happens there. But, you know, often it's, it's followed up by sadness, you know, like there's a, there's a remorse that goes into it. Yeah. In the same way that social media is causing a lot of people to have depression. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that like, when we think about the commandments of Christ, and I wouldn't, I don't even know if commandment is really a good word, you know, like kind of like the parameters that 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 we learn from the gospels and that we learn from the old testament it's more of like look if you want to live a full rich life in the way that you're made like in in who you are like if you do these things you're actually going to have a happier life mm. like living you know in a in a place of you know hedonism the implication is that you're going to be happier because you get to do whatever you want. But in all actuality, it's not the case. Like, it's just not the case. You know, like, if doing drugs, like, obviously makes you happy. Like, doing meth, I'm sure, makes you really happy in, in that in that season, that moment. But I just don't know a lot of meth addicts that are laying on their deathbed like, yeah, I'm really glad I was a meth addict and, like, my life is great, you know? And that's an extreme example for sure. But hedonism isn't the same as pleasure or wholeness or being, you know, the vessel that you're made to be. And um, I think when I started to realize that, oh, God told me to do these things because this is actually a mercy. Like, this is actually saving me so much pain and suffering and heartache. And I don't always do those things at all. But it was just a different, it was a mode shift in my mind. Yeah, It's like helping someone to make a better choice or to do the right thing is not negating their happiness or negating their own pleasure. You're actually helping them possibly actually attain some sort of wholeness and happiness and pleasure. Hmm. Um, it's hard, but it's hard to, to, to dictate that. And I think the evangelical world has, has fallen victim to skewing this us versus them mentality. Like if you don't do these rules and you're the them, and you love Satan, and you can burn, you know? And it's like, we're all made to desire this wholeness, you know? And when we see what this kind of, like, parameter of wholeness that God has set out for us, and that the the life that Christ lived, and how we are kind of given this, this I don't want to say formula, but really given these parameters. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't so that because God is tyrannical and he says like, well, if you want to be on my team, you got to be able to do, you know, like 30 burpees in like 30 yeah. seconds. And you got to be able to do 20 push-ups and 20 pull-ups because you got to run the race. You know, like there's this kind of like be on my team. So you work out to be on my team. And if you can't, 
if you can't work out, you know, if you, if you hurt your knee, then you're out, you know, like you're not on the team anymore. When in all actuality, he was like, oh, you're, you're kind of living in squalor in whichever way you want to look at that. And like, here are some things that if you do these things, you actually are going to have peace, you know, like by following Christ, it's not about proving to God that he's super awesome and that you're terrible. Following Christ is like literally such a gift, right? It's not a gift. It is a gift to know God, 110%, more than enough. But it's almost like an extra gift that he's like, not only are you going to get to know me, the kind of like huge, scary, you know, wonderful being that that exists to hold, that holds all these things together. But actually I'm going to give you some things to do that's just going to make your life easier and better. And it may not feel easy at the, at the time, but it, it, it actually will. And you have these little epiphanies, like yeah. as you get older, you're like, wow, I'm really glad that I made that choice when I was 20. You know, I'm really glad that maybe I, like I, I'm always, I'm continually reminded, I'm glad that I married Alice because uh, there's been really hard moments and, and I feel like, you know, like some of the choices that I made when, when I wanted to get married was like, I think she's a good woman, you know, like I love her and I'm in love with her, but she's a good woman and she's gonna, when it, when it goes down, she'll be there, she'll be mm-hmm. ready and she'll, and she, and it's gone down, you know, like we've been through some hard stuff together and she was, you know, she's not perfect and she's not invulnerable but she's tough. She's a tough woman. And man, I like having a tough woman with mm-hmm. me, you know? And, uh, and I, you know, I'm glad I made that decision that we made that decision together. I hope she feels the same way about, about me for sure. Um, some of it is just, you know, things as simple as I look at some other friends that have like gone through, you know, like the choices that they made set them on a path. that's it's really sad now, you know? And in some way, it's like by being prudish in some ways for certain avenues of my life, I'm reaping the benefits of those in some way and just really normal, practical things. And so um, it's just a different conversation, you know, like seeking uh, to live the way that, that, that kind of Christ set out for us to live. There's a certain liberating factor that's just very pragmatic. It's not, you know... Yes, we're to glorify God, but like, you know, God's pretty smart. He kind of set it up to where we're kind of built for that. Like we kind of, there's a part of us that kind of needs that. We need to be those people. We we, we don't often want to, but sometimes we do want yeah, to, yeah. you know, and, and it's it can be pleasing to us to do that. Um, it's not just like a fight, like we have to always fight our flesh. Like, you know what, your flesh, your body it was made to do these things. We're just kind of in a... We've got a veil be- between us right now that will not always be there, and we have to deal with the veil, you know. That's of course, but we're we're actually we kind of we need some of this stuff, you know, to have a happier life. So it's kind of weird to like pitch Christianity as like I think you actually will have a happier life by doing this. Like you'll have a fuller, richer life by doing this, um, even though it doesn't appear that way necessarily. But you will, and. Um, yeah, I don't know how we got all the way down that that rabbit trail. <laughs> one of one of my favorite writers in this space we're talking about now has a book called The Utter Relief of Holiness. Oh, man, that sounds like a that sounds I mean, what like a, a good title. One. Yeah. yeah. It's you, those two things you don't normally think of those two things going together, holiness and utter relief. 
So I mean, and it changes the conversation of like an evangelical conversation or whatever. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like when you're sitting across the table of somebody that doesn't believe, your job is not to prove that they're wrong. You're you're just like opening an invitation for them, an invitation possibly of liberation. Yeah, and by them accepting or not accepting that is not a fight. They're not your enemy, right? You are literally just offering. Uh, a, an avenue of wholeness for them and you hope that they receive it. Man, you hope that they do. You hope that you receive it for your mm-hmm. own self. Yeah, but yeah. it's a different thing of like, it's us versus them. Rather, it's not that conversation. You know, it's not us versus them. And like, you need to get on my team. You need to play by the rules. It's like, these things are just avenues of wholeness. And I'm really thankful that I have this wholeness, like this fullness. I feel like I am existing as I sh- like as a full as full a person as I can be in this world that we live in yeah because God has been really good to me and and has been really kind to me and gracious with me and uh and so I want to leave that I want I want you to have that too you know like I want you to have that experience and I, I want you to be full because we want our friends and our family to be full um it's just a different, I think it just, the way we interact with people, it changes when we have that viewpoint yeah. rather than turn or burn, right. you know, right. like by always looking in the negation of something, we, we get negative results. We always look in the, in the absence of something, we always have absent results. But if we look at the, where it's going and the positive aspect of like the goodness of it it's a lot easier to talk about, yeah, you should want to participate in the goodness of this. It's good, you know? It's not God the megalomaniac play by the rules. Like, this is not, not, this is not the system. I think we've been told that from time to time, um, that God is this glory-hungry monster that you got to do everything he says because he's got to eat his little glory puffs that come out of your goodness. You know, like, if you do all the play by all the rules and God can eat those glory puffs and then he can be full and not kill you. And it's like, that's just not, that's not God. Like, I don't know who that is that you believe in, but that's not, that's not God, you know? And yeah, he's jealous and, and, but he loves us more than anything else. Like that's the one week, the attribute that we can always point to as being one of the strongest quantifiable attributes, you know? And love does not work that way. You know, love is an invitation um, for care and freedom, you know, to like lay your head on his bosom. You know, that's not a megalomaniac. Megalomaniac doesn't do that. And we have to be honest with maybe some bad teaching that we've received over the years and what we believe for our own selves because of our own presuppositions outside of God, outside of the church. Mm. For my own self, for sure, I'm talking to myself. Um, because it's a lot easier to believe when you realize what what God's intentions are and what he, who he actually is and what he actually asks of us. And, and not just asks of us, gives us, you know, like offers to us. You know, don't, he's not asking us to like, play by the rules. He's offering us some structure to have fullness. And that's kind of, it's pretty nice. You know, it's not natural sometimes, but it's nice. Glory puffs, huh? Glory. You know, it's just a visual. <laughs> I was thinking like Kirby, you remember the, yeah, the, yeah. the little, the little thing he like ate the thing and he got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, yeah. the little, yeah, that's great. Uh, Nintendo game. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, Aaron. I'm I really appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to close on? That's um, as good a place as any. Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say, you know, if you're listening, like consider how you can be vulnerable 
and discerning in your day. Like be vulnerable with people, be willing to let someone talk and you listen, even if you don't agree with them and discern what they're saying and come at it in a place of, of compassion. I think that a lot more can be accomplished, whether you're a person of faith or not, whether, you know, wherever you are in that way, it doesn't always turn out great. You know, like sometimes people are just terrible and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But I think, you know, that is something that we just need to reclaim and uh, be intentional about. And I say that to my own self as well. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It was great. All right. Signing out.